You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome back to the RN Mentor Podcast. I am happy to share this time with you and my special guest and returning guest, Dr. Anna Valdez. Dr. Valdez is a registered nurse with over 30 years of experience in clinical practice and nursing education. She has taught nursing at all levels in clinical, academic, and virtual settings. Dr. Valdez's research interests include emergency nursing, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, bias, anti-racism in nursing, and health equity. She is nationally certified in emergency, flight, and nursing education. Dr. Valdez has presented at several conferences and served on various health-related advisory boards. She has published numerous peer-reviewed articles and contributed as an author to two current emergency nursing books. Dr. Um, Valdez has served as editor-in-chief for teaching and learning in nursing. She is currently serving as editor-in-chief for the Journal of Emergency Nursing. Dr. Valdez is also the chair of the Emergency Nurses Association DEI Committee and is a member of the Emergency Nurses Research Advisory Council. In 2015, she was inducted as a fellow in the Academy of Emergency Nursing in recognition of her commitment to academic progression in nursing. Um, in 2018, Dr. Valdez was inducted as a fellow in the Academy of Associate Degree in Nursing. Welcome to the show, Dr. Valdez. Welcome to the show again, Dr. Valdez. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, and for for anybody, uh, and, and we have we have had a couple of more than one chance to uh, to uh, sort of collaborate on things. Uh, actually, the initial show that you are on was actually the third episode of the RN Mentor podcast ever, right? And you were on uh, with with uh, Dr. Walker, and you guys were promoting nursing mutual aid, which was very innovative at the time and still is, I think. I don't think it's been repeated. It was like a it was like a Twitter conference at the beginning of the pandemic. And that was very, that was very cool to see. Uh, and you actually, one of your stethoscopes uh, is actually, I think, your first nursing stethoscope that you got in an emergency from an emergency room physician. Is that from emergency nurses? It was a oh. gift. Um, I was I was poor when I became a nurse, uh, which you'll hear probably more about. <laughs> but so I had a very you know kind of cheap stethoscope working in the emergency department, and the emergency nurses in my department got together and got me a Litman, and that is what I donated to your project. Yes, and it's still uh, and 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 it's still there. So thank you so much for 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 you. I think you were the first donation of a stethoscope for that for that. Um, for that project, which actually got published in, Amer in American Journal of Nursing. So that was very cool um, to um, thank you. Thank you for continuing to support my work. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, we'll get started with uh, all my podcasts start the same way. Um, how did you get started in the world of nursing? Well, you know, it's an interesting story. When I was a little girl, I dreamed of being a marine biologist, um, but I'm a first gen um, college grad. And really didn't know like if college is even something I could do or how I would become a marine biologist. Um, when I, I grew up without a lot of fancy things, um, you know, we had what we needed, but that was about it. And um, to hardworking parents. And when I was 16, I got pregnant with my daughter, Mia. I was um, just starting my junior year in high school. And at that time, you know, keep in mind, this is like 36, 37 years ago, um, they really didn't allow pregnant 
girls to be in high school. So I dropped out of high school and I took my proficiency exam. Um, so I never actually graduated from high school. I just have a proficiency exam. Um, and when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was you know, pretty terrified about how I was gonna support this child. And um, I was working after I had dropped out of school, I was working in a food court in the mall um, making minimum wage at the time was $3.35 an hour, so didn't get very far, certainly not enough to live on my own. And I was trying to figure that out by myself. And by luck, I, um, I had a newspaper sitting in front of me, the Press Democrat, and there was this big article with pictures of a graduating LVN class. And it talked about um, kind of the, the LVN program being an equity program. And there was this picture and description of all of their recent graduates. And they were like me. Um, most of them were either immigrants or um, living below the poverty level, single parents, um, ethnically and racially diverse. Um, in fact, I don't think there, there were hardly anybody in the picture that was would be racialized as white. And it talked about like, you know, the support that they get and getting through and then what they earned when they graduated, which mm. was what I had figured out I would need to be able to support my daughter. And I was like, well, maybe I could do this. And I had had a positive experience. Um, I was uninsured. So I had had a positive experience with a nurse in the emergency department when I was 15. I, I took a bus to the emergency department and the resident was really very disrespectful to me. Oh. Um, and I, I was crying by the time he left. And like three minutes later, he came back in with the nurse that had been with him and um, apologized for his behavior. And I could see the nurse looking at him and I knew that she had taken him out in the hallway and got him together. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that's really powerful. I'd like to be able to do that for people. But I didn't really think like that was an option for me. So this article, it had a phone number to call counseling. So I called them to see, you know, is this like something I could do? Is this, you know, a possibility for me? And they made an appointment with me. And by luck, as I was sitting there, um, and probably not so much as luck, probably because I am phenotypically white. Um, but the counselor said, well, why don't you just become an RN? It's only a semester longer. And I was like, I, I don't know. Can I do that? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. So I started college at 17 years old. My daughter was six weeks um, old when I started. Wow. And I graduated from nursing school with an ADN uh, um, at the, just after I turned 22. Um, so that's kind of how I got into nursing. And um, for me, it's always been a really important story about representation and how important representation is. Because had I not seen that picture and read the stories of the people in the article, it would have never occurred to me that I could do this. Amazing. Amazing. That's awesome. Um, what was your experience like uh, going into the nursing workforce um, uh, at that time? You know, it was interesting. I graduated a year late because in my senior year, uh, my car broke down and I couldn't afford to fix it. So I couldn't oh go to clinical. So I had to pause a year. And the year before that I would have graduated, there was a huge demand. They were had, had sign-on bonuses and all of that. But for whatever reason shifted, the year I graduated, there weren't very many um, openings. So it was actually very hard to get a job. So I actually took my first job at San Quentin Prison. No. <laughs> which was... I know, right? It's uh, It actually was not terribly uncomfortable for me based on my background. Um, I felt pretty comfortable there. Um, but it was a great opportunity experience for me because I worked um, in what was called their drop-in clinic, which is really an emergency department. It's too bad emergency department. I was totally unprepared for that kind of work, um, but I did the best that I could. And it really helped me to refine my um, physical assessment skills because we didn't have CT or emergency ultrasound or any of those kind of things. Um, and I did that for about two years. And I, because I was caring for adult men, I was really concerned about not developing skills to care for a broad spectrum of people. And so I left and I was fortunate to get hired in an emergency department um, and to be mentored very, very well and supported very well. Um, and I knew even in nursing school that emergency is where I wanted to be. Like the first time I walked into the emergency department as a student nurse, I knew that like I belonged here. <laughs> um, and so it was an interesting start to my career, but one that I'm actually really grateful for. 
Um, that's amazing. Um, how was your um, how was your transition? Um, I was not expecting San Quentin to be one of your answers. Uh, how was your transition into that role? Like, what were the because I know uh, the uh, corrections facilities um, use nurses and physicians and uh, all of that stuff, um, but I don't. Uh, as a new, as a fairly new graduate, how was that experience? experience going into like what was the environment just because I know there's need for nurses in correctional facilities and I don't think many people know that's an option for them so how was that uh initial transition what did their I'm air quoting your your new grad experience feel going into that role yeah, it was um, it was a very different experience than I think many new grads have um, because it really wasn't a mentored experience. I had to do a lot of learning on my own. But um, you know, in corrections, which is actually a very um, good place to work, I think if you have the right disposition for it, right, um, you can apply. You go through kind of a testing process. They rank you, and you get hired. Um, and prisons do hire nurses, physicians, nurse practitioners. I actually helped to write the proposal to add nurse practitioners. Um, they did not have nurse practitioners for many years. My husband oh, wow. was a correctional lieutenant, so I helped him to write that. Um, but basically, I was having a hard time finding a job, and my friend from nursing school said, hey, this um, like a staffing company is looking for people to take assignments at San Quentin. Are you interested in doing that? And I needed a job. So I was like, yeah, sure, I will go to San Quentin, which is just so you know, never on anybody's bingo card with me. <laughs> um, but- I'm thinking of adding that to my bingo card. I mean, that sounds like a very interesting experience as a nurse. It, it really was a very interesting experience. And so I said, sure, I'll do that. I went to the staffing place, you know, they did my competencies and sent me. And I was treated, even though I was actually an interim permittee when I started there, mm. I really didn't have a ton of supervision or mentoring. There were some older, more experienced um, nurses, and many of them were pretty gruff. And I remember the first time I was going to give an injection, remember that this, you know, I'm brand new nurse. I actually turned to one of the other nurses and said, hey, can you check this with my syringe? And she started laughing. She's like, why would I do that? It was like where I realized, like, I'm really an independent (laughs) practitioner here, right? Like, this all falls on me now. Um, But I really invested in learning as much as I could. And for me, it was, you know, I think you have to have a comfort for being in a space that is not always safe, but you know what, the emergency departments aren't right. always safe. In fact, I felt more safe at San Quentin many times than I did in the emergency department, right? Because I had armed officers around me. Um, so it was a little bit more protective. I think because I felt really comfortable, they moved me into the drop-in clinic because I was comfortable talking with people who are incarcerated. Right. And based on my background and my upbringing, um, I have a lot of respect for humanity and people who are incarcerated. And so I was always able to treat people the same way I would treat them if they were not incarcerated. And unfortunately, I did not see that with most other providers in that setting. The, the medical care is really pretty bad. Mm. Or after I left San Quentin, um, the court actually ordered it under like a conservative shift to manage healthcare because um, people who are in prison and jails do not generally get great care. Um, but I certainly did my best to do that. There were a couple of times that was hard. I um, I cared for a serial killer who I really despise as really a, a horrific human being. And that was a little challenging. I just didn't talk to him. I just did what I needed to do. Right. It's an interesting experience. I do not recommend it for new grads, um, but I think um, got great retirement, great, you know, great benefits, um, very steady schedules and those kind of things, um, reasonable workloads. And so right. it, it's, you know, it, it's the right thing for some people. Yeah. I, I know a number of nurses um, who left the previous organization I was working with to go work for, uh, for the correction system. And they were, they were very happy to make that transition. Um, so it's quite interesting. And as long as we're, we're airing our, our secrets, uh, I spent, um, I spent about five years as a reserve deputy sheriff uh, for LA County, but I was doing search and rescue stuff. But as part of the training, we had to do some time in in the uh, 
county prisons. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a very interesting work environment um, that uh, it's just very yeah. But I also in the emergency room, I think I felt safer in the prison than I did in the emergency room. So it's very true because you do have the extra support, physical right. support, and sometimes yeah. in an emergency room you don't know what's about to happen. Right, exactly. You don't know what anybody's carrying. You you don't have somebody who's immediately available to help if something goes wrong. So exactly. um, I always felt pretty safe. Awesome. Um, now, uh, I, I'm interested in your emergency nursing thing, because that's kind of how I got started in the world of nursing as well. Um, how uh, now I know you knew you want to go into, into that role, but as a lot of new graduates, and there aren't that many new graduate roles in emergency nursing, but uh, I had an opportunity to go into that role and you were, although you had some experience, you weren't like a hospital-based emergency room, right? Uh, um, what do you think of the idea of nurses going into emergency room as a new graduate? What's, you know, what's your thoughts? I think that they need to go in with their eyes wide open. Oftentimes, um, especially when I was like a hiring manager, we hire people who have some emergency experience. Maybe they were an EMT or a paramedic or an ER tech. Um, so, you know, but right now grads are being hired with no prior emergency experience. And so what I would say to graduates is, yes, you can do it. It is possible. It is pretty scary for the first couple of years because you really don't know what you don't know, right? And it's right. very easy to get kind of focused on just doing tasks and not really learning the clinical judgment that's needed. Um, emergency nurses practice with a lot of autonomy right. and are really critical to decision makings. You know, there may be eight nurses to one physician or two physicians or advanced practice providers. So it's really important. So for new grads, what I would say is make sure that you have a good mentorship program, yes. preceptorship program, that it's extensive um, and that you get the support that you need. Um, and also look at that ED. You know, we've had a lot of turnover and we're losing a lot of very experienced um, emergency nurses who are just too tired to continue, especially after the pandemic. And so make sure that you're going into the emergency department where there are experienced nurses to teach you. Um, it was scary for me. The first two years, I often felt like I didn't know what I was doing, um, but I was very well supported by nurses with 15, 20, 30 years experience in the emergency department. So I was never really kind of on my own trying to figure out what I was doing. So I would just say, if you don't have any emergency experience to really think through it carefully and make sure that you are set up for success because we're seeing so many um, new nurses who are entering the profession enthusiastic and are burned out and leaving in a year. You know, yeah. So make sure that you're making a choice. And I guess I really say that that's true for any area that you're planning to go into. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the actually things that I always tell my students is when they ask, uh, I said, uh, you know, when the opportunity comes at your interview to say any questions for us, ask about their new graduate program, ask about how you're going to be supported, ask about the unit you're going to be in and the culture of the unit. Because I think you hit the nail on the head is the support that exists uh, within that unit. Because there are some really fantastic hospitals out there with really great names and you walk into specific unit and it does not reflect the rest of the hospital or the reputation of the hospital as a new graduate RN. So I think it's that's one of the keys is making sure that you have the support system for really as long as you need it, right? right. Like I'm not saying stay in a new grad role forever, right. but if you need, uh, even when you're on your own and it's there's a day that you need that extra support or someone to go to, somebody should be there until you get to about 30 years under your belt, then you can say, I'm the support, right? Uh, right. But I think that that's, I think that's key. Um, now you went through your associate's degree program and I wanna come back because I know you're, uh, you received, uh, a, a, you, you're a fellow of the Academy, or is it Acad yeah, Academy of Associate's Degree in Nursing. Um, and I wanna come back to the associate's degree program with you, but I wanna know what made you decide that you, you said, I'm going to go on for uh, higher degrees as I develop in my role as a professional nurse? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, by the time I finished school, I knew I was going to advance my education. My goal was to finish nursing school before my daughter turned five. Um, and that was very specifically because I was four when I went to school and I was bullied and teased and it was hard. And I did wow. not want her to be four when she started school. Like I didn't have my first pair of new clothing till I was 10. And so I wanted her to go to school in new clothing and be like everybody else to not have to have free lunch. Nothing wrong with free lunch. I think every child should have free lunch, every kid. Um, but I just, I wanted her to have a different experience. So I went to work right away so that I could provide that. And I knew I wanted to go back to school. Um, and then a few years later, I, you know, I got married, I had my son and I waited till he was about five and then went back to school. And I, you know, I started with my BSN. We didn't have have um, streamlined continuing education in the way that we're working to have it now, which is partly why I invested a lot of effort into progression, right? Educational progression, because I think um, one, the ADN programs produce exemplary nurses. Um, I think that I got an excellent education. Um, and I think it's important that we have those programs because I would have never become a nurse if they did not exist right? Um, but I knew I wanted to continue my education. But honestly, the reason I wanted to continue my education, I wasn't so concerned about having a BSN, or even really a master's is I wanted to earn a terminal degree, because I wanted my mom and dad to be able to tell people that their daughter was a doctor. Amazing. Um, I, I it was really important to me to make my parents proud. Um, and then when I was in my master's program, I fell in love with teaching and leadership. I, I did a general master's in education and leadership. Um, so I knew I, I you know, I, I kind of want to pursue that. But I also was diagnosed with lupus during that time and mm. knew that I would not be able to work at the stretcher side in an ED forever. Um, so that kind of propelled me. I went straight. I started my bachelor's program without a break and went all the way through my PhD. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's a lot. That's it is. a lot. Again, I had a goal set for myself for when <laughs> I had to get that done. And one thing about me is if I say I'm going to do it and I give myself a deadline, it happens. That's that's awesome. Uh, which, you know, there are some programs now out there uh, that are BSN to PhD programs. So you did you did a uh, DIY BSN to PhD program. I did. I did every step. I did the long road road. I have way more units than I should have ever had to take. I have way more debt than I ever should have had to have, <laughs> um, which is why I fight so hard for academic progression for ADN nurses. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm still glad that I did it. It's afforded me a lot of opportunities in a really rewarding career. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I, and I'm in agreement with you. Uh, years ago, I drank the Kool-Aid on uh, on BSN being an entry level for nursing. But when you look at the number of individuals um, that would not be in nursing if it had not been for that, for that ADN program or the number of ADN nurses that we have still working at bedside and uh, in leadership roles uh, and in entrepreneurship and innovation, um, there's definitely that like we can't I don't see us ever moving away from that because it is an entry level into the profession and that people should choose to progress forward which I'm a big prom pro proponent of also I think people should have opportunities to progress forward into their bachelor's and master's and PhD or DMP or whatever that, that they choose um, I have I have uh, years ago I started revisiting why I thought what I did and it was really like the profession was telling me BSN should be uh, the entry. And I didn't question it because people in leadership roles said that's what it should be. Um, but uh, I have since, uh, I have since uh, like questioned myself why I thought that. And I don't necessarily, I don't, well, actually not necessarily, I don't agree with it any longer because so many people are afforded opportunities to get out of their current situation, get out of poverty, or that might be the only thing that they already have a bachelor's and master's degree and they're just looking to get into the profession of nursing for some other reason. So um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm happy to see the transition programs that are now in place from ADN to BSN, but uh, I would not support getting rid of the ADN program just because I think it's so valuable to the profession and the manpower and, and bringing a, a whole uh, group of individuals that normally would not be able to 
you know, may not be able to afford or just not interested in, in a four-year program or a five-year program, whatever the case may be. So I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, um, well, even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't just the right thing to do, I mean, one of the things that's really important is a significant portion of the diversity that is within nursing, which is seriously lacking, comes from ADN programs. 100%. But also um, a, a significant, probably at least half of nurses practicing at the bedside are ADN grads. Um, and I always encourage uh, learners to continue their education to at least get a bachelor's degree because it does expand your understanding and range of knowledge of all the roles in nursing and the ways in which we contribute to health. Um, you know, most pre-licensure programs, whether baccalaureate or ADN focused, heavily on hospital care. Right. And I want nurses to be educated beyond that. Um, but I don't think that we should ever get rid of it. And I don't frankly think we can. We do not have the infrastructure to meet the healthcare demands in the United States without ADN programs. Understandable. And yes, I completely agree with that. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, how you, and you've been in various roles. And, and at some point, I want to talk to you about your your leadership roles that you've had, and especially with editor-in-chief of multiple uh, journals. Uh, how, how did you decide you were going to, um, after you went through your uh, um, education uh, progress, uh, how did you decide you were going to get into leadership roles and mentoring? Because I also know you're big on mentoring. So uh, what, what made you decide that was, your, that was going to be your, your route? You know, it's interesting. I never intended to be in management roles or to be in leadership roles. They sort of just came to me. I'm good at organizing. I'm good at prioritizing and getting things done. So I'm fairly effective in those roles, but it was never my goal. I like providing direct patient care. I like being side by side with a learner, helping them to learn about nursing or to learn about leadership or whatever. But I've sort of fallen into those roles. Um, and my husband, this is probably not very PC of me to say, I remember when I was talking to him about needing to get out of the roles, he's always been in leadership roles. And he, and he said, well, you know, I'd rather be the dummy than work for a dummy. And um, <laughs> basically what he meant is at least if I'm the person, I'm responsible for what is happening. And so I think that I've just kind of gravitated to those roles um, and I probably would not ever be a, in a leadership role in a hospital again, because I think it's just incredibly difficult and yes. for me, very unsatisfying and, and frankly, leaves me with moral distress most of the time. Um, and, you know, even being a chair in at Sonoma State University, um, I am going to be co-chair next year because I really want to be back in the classroom. That's where I like to be. I like to be with learners. I like to be mentoring and supporting people. Um, and I think I've, I've carried that into whatever I'm doing. I'm always looking at succession planning. I'm always looking at how I can help other people grow into the roles they want to be in um, because I've been blessed to have people who do that with me. And I feel like not only is it a professional responsibility, it's a personal responsibility. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, having been in um, management on the service side, I do not enjoy it at all. Uh, and actually, I just had a conversation from with a with a dean from a um, from a school of education at another university, um, and she's a dean of it. And I was like, I don't ever see myself wanting to go back into a leadership role where I have to make. Um, it just, I don't like, I need to be, yeah, I'm the same way. I, like, I need to be with students. I need to be interacting with them. I like the mentoring of the students. I don't like the administrative stuff that comes uh, with like in those positions. And, and it's interesting you mentioned that like nursing tends to be, tends to be in middle management and they get it from both the staff and like the CEOs and the CFOs and things like that. And it was actually uh, in recently in New York when they had a strike, um, it was really interesting because I saw two different uh, nurse leaders uh, from New York that actually were interviewed and called the strike unethical. And I felt so bad, not for the nurses or the institutions, but I felt bad for them that they 
were put in a position where they were probably trying to support the organization because that's what they're expected to do. But they had to, by saying something like that, they were not able to support their nurses. And I'm sure there was some nurses that listened to her give that give that interview and felt very unsupported. So to be that person, I would I just don't I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy that. And I think that's the moral dilemma that that a lot of middle management tend to kind of fall into. Like, are you supporting the organization because your job is supporting the organization or do you support the nurses because that's also your job uh, so it's very interesting it's a very fine line and i was uh i was disappointed but uh to to hear that from them but but it was very um that may be a research study all, all of its own so <laughs> yeah you know my hat's off in deep respect to particularly middle managers and nursing, but nurse leaders who are able to do that and navigate that in a way that truly supports the growth and development of their staff and upholds what the staff needs. Um, I think those um, leaders are few and far between because yes. of the pressures you talk about there. Right. It's, it's an impossible role. It's a, it's a no win role. And for me, I, you know, I've left leadership positions because of things like decisions to make layoffs because mm. I could, the moral distress for me was too much. I could not participate. Um, so yeah, and the same reasons that I'll never be a Dean again. I was an associate Dean. I left that position. I'll never do that again as well, just because it is really hard to have that balance. And for me, um, the needs of the nurses and the learners is my top priority. And so right. You know, I, I I focus on that, which is hard to do, and um, the people above me don't always appreciate it. Right, I I, I agree. I have left positions um, because I the institution was no longer was no longer. I didn't see the institution supporting the work of nursing, and like they definitely had the commercials out there saying they supporting nursing, but their actions, like I started seeing in, in some of the bigger institutions actually in Southern California or in California that they were replacing <clears throat> high level nurses uh, at the national level with physicians, even though that those jobs were historically supported by, or were held by nurses. And I saw that happening and I saw every, all the nurses being, push the notch down uh, in the organizational charts. And I was like, this is not okay. This is, I can't support this moving forward. And I can't be part of it because now I know that there's a ceiling that I'm not going to be able to, uh, to kind of get over, right? Right. Um, so so those are barriers. And, and, and I, I appreciate those who, um, as you mentioned, I appreciate those individuals that are actually out there and doing uh, the, doing the work, but also the ones that are able to navigate the two worlds successfully, because that's a that's a that's a very specific skill and talent that we don't see too often. So I, I agree with you. Um, now uh, you uh, you have worked in academia and you have worked in, in, as multiple in multiple positions as chief. Uh, uh, editor uh, or editor-in-chief, I should say, uh, of multiple journals. How did you decide that you were going to go into uh, into publication, sort of say? So, you know, um, around the time I finished my master's degree or when I was in graduate school, I began to see the importance of disseminating information, right? Um, and I, I knew that I wanted to write. I've always liked writing. Writing is my favorite way to express myself. Um, I write every single day. And so I, I knew that I would want to publish articles. I actually took an independent studies class in graduate school that um, my the entire project was for me to write an article for publication and have it published. So I got my very first um, peer-reviewed article published. Um, it was about emergency, new grads in the emergency department. And what we know about it was a literature review. And that was really exciting for me. It's still a, an exciting publication for me. It's pretty old now. It's like 15 years old, but it still gets cited um, and because it's still a major problem that we have. Uh, right. And so I kind of took an interest and I um, was very involved with the Emergency Nurses Association. I'm a lifetime member. I've been active with them for decades now. And um, I knew that like, 
I wanted to get involved with the journal, but didn't necessarily know how. And I reached out to Annie Kelly, who is the managing editor for the Journal of Emergency Nursing. And she is currently the managing editor that I work with. She's been there a long time and said, how, how do I become a reviewer? How do I get involved? And she said, well, um, you know, I'll sign you up as a reviewer. And we do have a section that would welcome a co-editor if you wanted to do it. And at the time I was really focused on injury prevention because I had such a hard time in the trauma room. I was a trauma nurse seeing people whose um, severe injuries and deaths could have been prevented, right? Mm. So I was doing injury prevention stuff. So um, I just, by luck, got put into this section editor, co-editor role in injury prevention, which is why if you look at what I published, a lot of what I published um, it historically has been an injury prevention. And the co-section um, editor, Tommy St. Mars, was a wonderful mentor for me and helped me to learn how to edit papers, solicit papers, do those things. And I was a section editor for uh, Journal of Emergency Nursing for 13 years. Um, I loved it. And um, at, a, at a certain point, Dr. Ann Manton, who's been my mentor as an editor, um, invited me to join the editorial board. And um, when I did that, I said at some point, I'd really love to be an associate editor. So about a year later, she asked me to be associate editor and mentored me in that role. Um, and I served on the executive editorial board and associate editor role at the Journal for Emergency Nursing for a few years and decided I really wanted to be an editor. Um, partly, you know, whether um, intentional or unintentional, nursing editors are gatekeepers of nursing science and knowledge. And I think that with that comes great responsibility of being aware that you have a gatekeeping role and um, being very mindful of how that's used. And I saw real gaps in terms of what was being published and who was being published. In nursing, we have a tendency, and we'll, I mean, frankly, we oppress each other. We don't need oppression from outside. The reason why I believe that we cannot make the progress we need to make is because we're so busy oppressing each other instead of working together. And I wanted to see change in terms of who was able to publish and whose voices were being um, amplified and what information was being disseminated. And um, so I had the opportunity at the position to open up for teaching and learning and nursing. I had been actively involved with the organization of associate degree nursing for many years doing academic progression work um, and making sure that ADN grads do not have to take years of additional units like I did and incur additional um, uh, costs. And so I applied for that position and it was a competitive process and I got it. And I'm really grateful that it was my first editor role because it's a, a smaller society journal. And um, I had a ton of support from Donna Meyer and the Odin um, staff and was able to build the editorial board, um, you know, select my associate editors and really um, have autonomy over what we published, which has allowed us to publish things that are really important to me, like directly talking about racism, directly talking about how white supremacy is embedded within um, our culture and nursing and in society and not kind of tiptoeing around those things. And I had the support to be able to do that. So I'm really grateful for that because it allowed me to grow a lot, but it also allowed me to mentor other people. I, I mean, I am so incredibly delighted that Dr. Justin Fontenot is now the editor in chief. He worked with me as the associate editor for a long time and um, is gonna be, is a brilliant editor and will do a phenomenal job. So it was really a great opportunity for me. But when the position opened again for the Journal of Emergency Nursing, as much as I loved teaching and learning and nursing and the people I was working with, I had to apply for that because that's home for me, my home. Um, I haven't worked in the emergency department in 10 years. I remained clinically current. I maintain my certifications. Uh, but I physically can't do that work, but it is my home. It's where I belong. It's what I love. And so the opportunity to be able to come back to home and what I love and continue the same type of work I'm doing as an editor um, was something I couldn't pass up. And I'm really grateful that I got selected for that opportunity. Well, congratulations on that. I know I, I when you put your social media posts, I saw you made that announcement and I was like, yes, that's awesome. 
Uh, so congratulations on that. Um, now you mentioned something uh, that sparked a thought in my brain, uh, and uh, and that's the gatekeeping of uh, journal editors, right? Or journals, period. What is your, and I don't want to put you on the spot on this, uh, but what is your thoughts around open access versus um, journal publications on the traditional way where it's limited, you can only do so many articles per publication versus open access really opens up the floodgates for more scientists, nurse scientists, to publish their very valuable work, but may not be the flavor of the month, right? Yeah. Uh, what's your thoughts around that? You know, I think it's really interesting in that um, we as editors are going to have to make some significant changes in the way in which we do things. I think the issues of open access are complex. Um, you know, there you have there are people who do this work who are paid to do this work, right? And you have to have a way to pay them, right? right. And so often with op open access, people who are getting open access have grant funding generally that will pay for that or they are um, fortunate like me to work in the CSU system where there's an agreement with, for me, for Elsevier, so the journals I've been an editor for to where my, what I publish is open right. access. But I think um, many people don't have that. And then many people don't have the access to get past those paywalls, which is really a challenging thing. Right. Um, that being said, I think there's gonna be a major shift. I mean, one of the things I said when I interviewed for this job is, yes, journal impact factor matters. People look at it, esteemed authors look at that. Um, but it's kind of an antiquated approach, right? Just looking at how many times articles are being cited within a period of time. And, right. and for me, it's not really a reflection of the impact of that journal. For me, like at the Journal of Emergency Nursing, the impact I wanna make is at the bedside. No. I want to make a clinical impact. I want to make an impact on the nurses that are providing that care, that we're providing them education, we're providing them accurate and timely clinical information that they can turn around and apply and practice right now because they are drowning. They don't have a lot of time. If it's behind paywalls, they're not going to be able to get to it. Um, so, you know, I like every issue I have negotiated an editor's choice where I can pick something and make it not open access, but free, no people, mm, right? right, so that we can kind of amplify those. But I think we have to change our view about how we measure the impact of journals and how we disseminate information, because with social media and globalization where, you know, we can be talking to somebody in another country right now, real time, um, People want their work out there quickly. They want it to be as open and as freely available. For me, I am very much invested in open access to education and, um, and having access to the newest scientific information. So I think we'll have to look at other ways because you see people using other processes now, right? Preprints right. that are not peer reviewed, um, which, you know, the Journal of Emergency Nursing accepts using um, open sites like Medium, for example, you know, my colleague, um, Dr. Ray Walker publishes a lot on Medium. And I know that they get kind of some guff about it not being like a scholarly peer reviewed thing, but they're right. getting really important information out there and able to share it broadly. So I think it's complex. I think it's going to require a, a lot of conversation and um, change in, in what we do, right? We have to utilize those mechanisms to be able to reach readers and to get the information out. Because what's really happened is we've kind of held it in this special place where certain people get access and other right. people don't, right? Which is problematic in nursing in many areas, not right. just in um, the dissemination of information. Right. And, and I think it requires a, it requires a shift. And I'm, and I'm very happy to see uh, the UC, uh, the UC system in California and the CSU system in California really pushing back on, uh, on the availability of the information that their scientists at those at the universities are producing, right? Uh, so I'm I'm really glad to see that happening. Yes, I completely get the business side of publication, like I understand it. Uh, but uh, but then again, uh, you're you're right with the paywalls and availability of that information to the general public, right? To anybody that wants to use it anywhere in the world, because from a uh, scientist perspective, we don't 
we don't say I just want a specific population to read as we're like, yes, I want that specific population to read it, but I want it available for everybody, right? Because um, we're putting in the time, the energy, the funding, we're like, it's all us. And then the publications hold it, right? And I'm like, now I can't do anything with it without permission or things like that, which a lot of unfortunately uh, um, new scientists and writers are have to publish in a very specific area behind those paywalls and give up their rights to everything. And it's, it's uh, I, I'm glad to see that we're starting to see a shift uh, more um, focus on the, on the work and the authors as opposed to the publisher. So. Uh, well, there's some real equity issues there. Too. Yes. Huge. So that's huge. my biggest problem with it is if you have an NIH grant, an NINR grant, then um, then you have the funding to be able to make your research open access. But that's a very exclusionary process, right? right. Where um, exactly how you write things and, and how, how gifted you are in grant writing is more important necessarily than what you're going to research. And it's often very defined research. So we right. see nurse scientists doing research in these very defined areas in order to get funding. And what is often missing from that is the type of research I like to do around equity and right. diversity. Um, and, you know, and, and like recently there were grant funds that were finally, people weren't getting rejected and, and encouraged to apply for those kind of things. But the turnaround was so short that somebody who doesn't have a full team helping write a grant couldn't possibly apply for that. So Very people true. who didn't have the most expertise necessarily were getting those grants. And so, I, you know, I think there are equity issues too in terms of who's able to do research. I do research and it is not grant funded. It is on my own time. And right. that's a heavy burden, right? Um, right. And, and I think that that happens a lot. And I think we need to reevaluate the way we prioritize what is researched and what is published in nursing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I 100% agree. Like, uh, you know, I was in the CSU system. Now I'm in the UC system and I can see the disparities. Uh, and I get it. UC systems are primarily uh, funded through research and grants where the CSU system is, uh, I think they're all oh, like 100% granted or, or funded by the state. And I can see uh, one's teaching focused, the other one's research focused. But one, one of the reasons uh, I moved over to the UC system, I'm like, I need research support, right? But I know some brilliant individuals in the in the in the CSU system, the California State University system, that struggle because the support system doesn't exist, and they are not uh, publishing as much as, and they're not researching as much as they should be, right? Because they have um, they have a very they have a like I said, they're brilliant, and and the topics that that they they want to study or they are studying are very relevant today, but just because of the systems, they're not able to, right? Right, right. Um, that, And you're right. Uh, so there's a huge equity issue with 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 uh, with funding, grants. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm 100% on board with that. So, so yeah, so we, that, uh, thank you for, uh, for answering that. Um, uh, so I appreciate it. Now, um, I have a couple more questions for you and I promise I'll let you go. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, you do a lot of work around uh, around um, uh, uh, EDI work, and and um, and and I know you are um, very. I've seen you on social media more than more than probably like several dozen times talking about disability uh, in the world of nursing um, and and what we're doing. Uh, how did you get involved with with Things like you know working on on bias and anti racism and health equity and uh, disability awareness. Um, how did you get how how did you decide that was going to be your platform uh, that you're going to be doing some work in? Um, you know, it was strictly really from personal reasons. Uh, my family, I'm phenotypically white. I am mostly white, but I am multiracial. My family, the people who I live with, who I see on a regular basis are Black and Puerto Rican. And um, through that experience being phenotypically white, I have been 
very well aware since I was a teenager of the differences in my experience and what is available to me and what is accessible and the freedoms that I have that, for example, my mother, who's an unambiguously Black woman, has. Um, and I can't trade skin with her. I can't fix, I can't make it better. I can't give her the privilege and the normalcy that I experience when I walk out the door. And that's really painful for me. Um, and, you know, my sister, who is a dark skinned, beautiful black woman, and my aunties and my cousins and, uh, you know, all of my family, um, seeing the discrepancies in the care they get. I, I can't let my aunties go to the doctor without me being there, at least on the phone, because I'm afraid that they will be disregarded, that they will experience racism. I have watched my mom almost die because of racism in the, in the, um, in the hospital on a day when I wasn't there. I was hours away and had to call a rapid response myself. Wow. hours away. And so because I've been acutely aware of the, the differences in how I am treated, per particularly when I am dressed, you know, like a professional in the healthcare system, as compared to the experiences of the people who I deeply love, it, you know, I've been like a member of the NAACP since I was 18 years old. So this has been something very important to me, and it will continue to be a um, something that I go hard on for the rest of my life or until such time as I no longer fear that my cousin is going to get the same care, isn't going to get the same care as me. Um, and so that's been, you know, my drive there is I know firsthand mm -hmm. what it is to have white privilege. I understand that. And I know what racism looks like on a daily basis um, because I know how I'm treated when I'm by myself and I know how I'm treated when I'm with my family. Um, and so I, I don't have a blind spot that I think many nurses who are phenotypically white have. Um, and then in terms of disability, um, in my 30s, you know, actually, I probably started, I probably had lupus at about 27, which is pretty characteristic. It mostly affects women, it mostly affects women of color. Um, but I didn't get diagnosed until my early 30s. I just kind of suffered. I got told I was fat. Um, I needed to exercise more, even though I was walking 15,000, 20,000 steps a day in the ED. Um, and I, you know, I had to fight really hard for a diagnosis and it was really hard for me practicing in the ED. Um, nobody knew that I had, I have several complex autoimmune disorders. They didn't know except for my best friend. And mm. so I pretended to be well, I pushed forward. It took a real toll on me. Um, and I was very, very hesitant. In fact, sometimes still, and you've probably seen this in my post, it's, it's scary for me to be um, authentic and vulnerable about having a disability in nursing because there is a lot of ableism. Um, when people know that you are disabled, they kind of write you off of like, you can't do the job, find something else to do, you should retire. Um, and I, I decided when I was teaching to disclose that I was disabled in autoimmune disorders because I found out there was a really big gap in students' understanding and myself personally, being somebody who I consider myself to be really inclusive, I believe my patients, I care about my patients, I could never have understood the type of fatigue or pain that somebody with lupus experiences from anything I would ever read, any video I'd ever see. It's hard to even articulate. And so I had this opportunity, if I was willing to self-disclose, to give learners insight and hopefully make them better nurses. So I chose to do that. And then, um, you know, at, at a certain point, I just decided I was going to be authentic publicly. Um, and so you'll see, I talk about what it's like to have chronic pain. That's really scary for me because I still worry that there's somebody who's reading that going, oh, she just wants drugs, right? And I don't actually even take drugs. For my, I mean, I take steroids, but, um, you know, I use heat and lidocaine patches and those kind of things, but it, it's, it, it's still scary, but I do it because 10% of the population in the United States has some form of disability. And I would extrapolate that over to nurses. I would say that probably at least 10% of nurses, in fact, there's a higher incidence of autoimmune disorders in nurses, um, who suffer in silence in the way that I did because they know they're not going to be supported and they're afraid that they're going to lose opportunities. And um, since I'm in a place in my life where I'm incredibly privileged, I'm a tenured professor. 
in the university that I intend to retire from. I'm not looking to promote. I, I do not wish to promote. I'm not, um, I don't have any further, you know, accolades or levels to strive to. Um, I am very secure in where I am. So the risk is low for me. And um, other than kind of the personal risk of how people might judge me. And so I feel like being in that role and having the privilege of having a tenured position, knowing that I'm already, I've already accomplished things that I want to accomplish. Um, I feel a, a deep responsibility for speaking the truth, teaching the truth, being honest, pointing out these issues in nursing that we must fix collectively. We have to put together because I'm not going to lose my job. My mom can't do that. My mom can't be as direct about racism as I am because she's afraid she's going to lose her job. You know, tenure track faculty or nurses in practice may not have that same ability because it's an actual financial risk for them. For me, it's not. And so I think that also means that it's a responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, you know, uh, your openness about uh, your own um, help uh, and speaking up. And I know, uh, and for all of our listeners, I will have uh, Dr. Valdez's social media um, handle, which is um, at uh, Dr. Anna M. Valdez. Uh, so Dr. Anna M. Valdez on uh, Twitter and Instagram. So highly recommend. Uh, but um, but I, I I appreciate the fact and I see those posts and a lot of our um, experiences uh, as nurses we don't we don't openly share. Uh, my own cancer diagnosis a few years back, uh, I shared with my students now. I, sh- I use myself as an example as a case study because um, I'm not your typical individual with uh, thyroid issues and. Uh, also, I'm not your, um, and my treatment has been a little bit different because it didn't go as as, uh, as uh, flowery as a lot of people said, oh, thyroid cancer, that's easy treatment. Uh, no, I'm five years out and I'm still not, I'm still not cleared uh, for this. So yeah, so there's definitely issues um, that we, and I'm glad to see uh, that you're sharing and I'm glad to see you here and uh, talking to me about it and being open about it. So it's very much appreciated. So thank you for that. Um, I did want to talk about uh, one more thing uh, with you, and, and then I'll give the floor to you. And uh, that is, um, uh, I know you're big on mentorship, but you mentioned some mentors in your life. Um, why, as a profession, I feel like we, if I was if I was an individual that didn't have a mentor, um, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I had difficulty finding mentors in my nursing career where it was not an issue when I was in the military. I know exactly who my mentors were going to be. Nursing, not so much, a little bit more difficult. Uh, um, what does nursing need to do to kind of push us uh, forward with um, more nurses stepping up and actively taking a mentorship role? Um, what are your thoughts around that? You know, I think it's a professional obligation. And I believe that every time you take a step forward, whether you, you know, obtain certification, you got a new job, you promoted in a position that you should be reaching your hand back and pulling somebody with you, right? Um, I, most of the people who mentored me did not know that they were mentoring me. And I think that's true of a lot of people. Some of the people who mentor me now, who I learn from every day, do not know that I watch the way they move. I watch what they say. I'm learning from them. And so one thing I would encourage nurses who maybe don't have a formal mentorship is find people. We have this opportunity with social media now where you can tap into brilliance all over the place right? And it doesn't even have to just be a nursing, but find people who are doing what you want to do and follow them, listen to them, see what they write. Um, You know, a lot of my editor work, Dr. Ann Manton did not know she was my mentor until I told her a couple of years later that she was mentoring (laughs) me. So sometimes it's not always really clear, like this is my mentor. Um, But I feel like at each step in our profession where we get, we should be with the people who are around us saying, hey, what are you trying to achieve? Right. Right. And how can I help you to achieve that? Because we all do better. We're all stronger when we are all growing and um, achieving and feeling supported. Um, And then, you know, I also think 
kind of be strategic about what you want to help people do, right? I do a lot of mentoring as it relates to anti-racism and bias and those kind of things. Um, but also, you know, as my first thing as a new editor was to say to the editorial board members, who wants to be an editor? Who's here because you want to be an editor? Let's talk, yeah. right? And, and Dr. Fontenot raised his hand. It's like, I want to be an editor. I'm like, let's do it, you know? And so I think being um, intentional about what you can share and teach. One of the things that has been really hard for me is being a um, somebody who's first gen college grad who didn't have generational knowledge or wealth. And that's why I ha still have enormous student debt and, and things like that. But I... I didn't know how to navigate. And many times I still don't know how to navigate certain systems. So I had to watch other people and see how they navigated it. And it puts you behind some, right? So right. watch for that. Watch for that too. Ask people, what do you need? You know, what information can I share with you? Um, right now in my life, I'm very intentional about um, seeking out and mentoring people who are underrepresented and have been historically excluded or marginalized in nursing. Um, because I want to make an impact there, right? So think about what impact you want to make and how can you do that? You don't have to mentor a whole bunch of people. Pick somebody, right? Who right. you see great potential in, who you have knowledge that you can share. You know, we can do generational knowledge in nursing. It doesn't just have to be in families. Right. And so um, I love that your podcast is RN Mentor, um, because I think a lot of people don't have access to people who are in positions, um, you know, like I remember when I was a nurse in school, one of my teachers had been a nurse for 30 years, which was mind boggling to me at the time and was so capable. And I'm like, you know, someday I want to be like that person, right? And that's true of all of our nurses that are coming into the profession. So grab somebody and say, hey, what do you wanna be? What do you wanna do? Let me help you get there. It's yeah. very rewarding. It is time that is so well spent. I, I agree with you. And I, and I appreciate the fact that, you know, uh, in my opinion, I was, it was always like, who are the individuals? Uh, and I'm lucky now because I had one specific individual that uh, reached out to me not too long ago and, and, sa and said, I want to mentor you for your next step. Right. Uh, and that, 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 that was such a surprise for me. I'm like, what? I'm mean, like, and this is somebody, somebody I, I highly respect and, uh, and I appreciate their work and for them to reach out was very different for me because usually it's me reaching out or trying to take somebody's time where this, this individual actually shared their time with me voluntarily, like said, reached out and said, Hey, Ali, um, I think we need to talk about what your next steps are going to be for you know, for your career. And I, and I, and I was very appreciative of that. And I'm still, I still am. Um, so yeah, so I completely agree. Uh, so thank you so much. I'm going to, uh, my last question for you is anything else you want to share with, with our audience? You know, I just have one thing. I know that this particular um, season is focused on leadership. So I just want to take a moment to talk to nurses that all of us are leaders. And we all have the potential to lead in some space and to improve nursing and to improve the health equity um, and nurse this entire nation as Dr. Monica McLemore has said. Um, and so I, I would really encourage nurses to think about in what ways they can lead. Um, if you are in leadership roles, think about, reflect on how the way in which um, your system is set up, your policies are set up, your leadership is set up, um, it may be promoting or fostering um, continued oppression within nursing. How do we lift each other up? How do we get together, right? How do we let go of things of it should be BSN or it should be ADN for this, working on this unit is more esteemed than working on this unit or having this degree or education makes you better than this person. How do we move past all of that and really actively lead? And um, we must take control of our profession. We must take control of our practice. Our practice has been dictated to us. It is a legacy from Florence Nightingale. It's no surprise that I am not her biggest fan. 
Um, <laughs> but I, I believe she brought exclusionary practices and oppression into nursing that didn't okay. exist before. And we have a responsibility to change that. You know, I utilize the Future of Nursing report all the time. I appreciate that they focused on nurse wellness, which is critical right now. And I absolutely appreciate the focus on health equity. But that committee was more than half physicians. And that's not acceptable to me. And, and that committee was largely academic nurses, and that's not acceptable to me. We have to take control. And in order to do that in our leadership roles, we have to end the oppression of each other. We have to see each other, regardless of our experience, our background, our education, our position, as equals, as united together in a profession. And, and we have to begin to use that power as the largest healthcare profession in the world to say, we will no longer do this. This is the way our practice is going to go. And that is what it is. Um, and we have that capacity. So. I guess I would just say, lean into that. Let's make that happen. I'd love to see that happen in my lifetime. I'd love to not have my practice legislated to me or dictated to me by people who are not nurses. And I appreciate that. Uh, very, very powerful uh, words from you. Um, and uh, I know the profession is better for having you in it and that much stronger for having you in it. So I appreciate it. Um, and with that, we're going to sign off of this podcast. Thank you for uh, joining us. We have been listening and learning from uh, Dr. Anna Valdez. Thank you all. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayyip. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas. Thank you.